Good morning to you. Glad you're here. Today we launch into our sermon series for the summer called Elijah and Elisha, the naturally supernatural work of God. And uh, we're going to spend the summer in the Old Testament books of, oops, I just did this wrong, of First and Second Kings. And we want to use First and Second Kings as a backdrop to really talk about Elijah and Elisha, these Old Testament prophets. But we're talking about Elijah and Elisha really to talk about the patience and the power and the presence of God. And we want to talk about more than anything that everything points to Christ. And so for the next 10 weeks, this is where we're going with this sermon series. First and Second Kings were originally written as one volume, and it's a narrative, much like Genesis, all the way through First and Second Samuel. The purpose is not to give every detail, but to be selective in the way that it points out the, the character, the nature, and the gracious sovereignty of God throughout history. And we're going to be even more selective. We're not going to do every verse out of First and Second Kings, but we want to look specifically at the texts that talk about Elijah and Elisha. Um, the prophets uh, are a weird bunch, and uh, the, the prophets uh, sometimes are, um, well, they usually just seemingly come out of nowhere. There's not a lot of background. We're going to talk about that in a second. But their purpose was to speak on behalf of God to the people of Israel, to speak the word of the Lord. And as you read through, I, I went back and just just read through all of First Kings uh, the last couple of weeks, just to kind of sit in it for a while, you know, and just to remind myself of all of those stories, but just to look for themes. And the word of the Lord shows up over and over and over. The word of the Lord, the word of the Lord came to. The word of the Lord was shunned by, you know? And so the word of the Lord is a big deal. And the prophets were this, this, this main voice box of God to the people of Israel. So their, their purpose was to interpret, to speak the word of the Lord, to proclaim good news or to proclaim bad news that was going to happen if the people didn't hold to the good news. They were meant to call people out of idolatry, and to point out injustice and to call people back to remember the covenant that God had made with them. And so you get to chapter 17 and it says, Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, um, Can you take over this? Because I will, I will just forget. And we'll be back on 15 slides back. Thanks, Kwesi. Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Now, in the same way that you don't jump into a Netflix series, uh, you know, in <laughs> season four, episode 19, you know, in the same way that you... If you're watching a movie that has lots of layers and complexities, um, <clears throat> some like, like Inception, and your roommate walks in two hours into it and says, hey, what's going on? That's how I picture your roommate talking. Um, 
It's hard to explain at that point. And so context is really important. And today, I want to set some context for Elijah um, as we get to chapter 17. And there's a lot in there. I want to catch you up a bit. The book of Kings is a continuation of the history of Israel, starting with the death of King David and the scramble for the throne. And eventually that led to Solomon's reign. And David, if you aren't familiar with David, David was the greatest king uh, that Israel ever had. And David was a man and a leader that was just devoted to God. He, he was described as a man after God's own heart. And he had his issues, for sure. But the, the heart of, and really the, the trajectory of his reign was one of just singular focus on God. And the people flourished under him. Um, God had made all sorts of promises to David, even before he was king, that he would reign, but also that his family, his lineage, would, would remain this, on, on the throne as long as they stayed true to God. But even then, when they fell away, eventually the Messiah, the Savior, the King of Kings would come through the lineage of David. And so everything points to Jesus. In the in-between, if, if the king was singularly devoted to God and the people followed suit, then things would go well. But if they left God to follow idols, the kingdom would fall apart. That was the promise all the way through that's the message, really, all the way through the Old Testament, from Genesis through Abraham to Moses and the law, and through the times of the judges, and then the kings and the prophets. So David dies, Solomon takes the throne, and it starts well, it begins well for Solomon. This is literally the golden era of Israel, the most powerful nation with the wisest king, um, God says, I'm going I'm to give you basically a wish, Solomon. I'm going to grant one thing to you. And Solomon says, I'll take wisdom for 400. And God says, that's the gift that keeps on giving. Good, good call. And so with wisdom, he got lots of stuff, you know, and he got power. And, and his name actually means peace. And so there was this time of, of unparalleled peace in the kingdom of Israel. Um, he also uh, took on a lot of a lot of wives. So he did some good things. He built a temple, and he uh, provided for the, for the kingdom, and his heart was in tune with God for a while, but then he started marrying all of these wives, and largely for political reasons. But with the wives came idols, and with the idols came God's promise that if your heart is not completely devoted to me, Things will not go well. And so uh, sin is subtle, but God's promises are consistent. So when Solomon turns his affections away from God and onto the idols of his wives, then chaos and curse and eventually exile come to the people of Israel. It's set into motion. So post-Solomon... You get this pattern, this trend, this slide away from God. His son was Rehoboam, and he was not so wise. 
And uh, under Solomon, he, Solomon actually, actually um, uh, put his own people to work, almost in, in a way of enslaving them. And so the people, after Solomon died, they said, we, we need to be done with that. And Rehoboam, Solomon's son, uh, went to the wise elders of Israel and, and said, what do you think? And the wise elders said, they are absolutely right. Solomon really took advantage of them and said, you need to ease the burden. And uh, Rehoboam said, duly noted. And then he goes over and talks to his friends, you know, his, his college roommates. What do you guys think? And they said, you need to double down on the oppression. You need to just kick them while they're down. And he said, duly noted, I'm going to go with you and not with the wise elders of Israel. And so that, that paid horrible dividends for Rehoboam. The people rebelled, and now you've got a split in the kingdom. So you have Judah, and you have Israel, and you have capital in Jerusalem for Judah, the southern kingdom, and you have capital of Samaria in the northern kingdom. So there are tons of kings, as you see, some 39, if you're keeping track. And so the criteria uh, is good to mention. What makes a good king, a solid king? And for Israel, it was these three things. Do they worship God alone? Are they getting rid of, of idolatry, anything that would, would detract from true worship? And are they faithful to the covenant? And so the score, if you're keeping score, um, for the northern kingdom, for, uh, for Israel, the score was 0 for 19. No kings passed this criteria. Every king was a bad king. In the, in the south, in, in Judah, you had uh, eight good kings and you had 12 bad kings. And so uh, Jeroboam is in the northern kingdom. So the split happens and Jeroboam becomes king of the northern kingdom. And it says that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. In chapter 12, he calls people to worship, much like we did today. But instead of worshiping God, it was a, a bovine uh, type of worship. He set up these golden calves in Dan, in, in uh, Bethel. And he did that because he's concerned about security. He said, okay, this, the kingdom just split. I've got my kingdom. I've got my, my 10 tribes in the north. I've got to keep them from going down south to Judah because if they go down there, they might start, you know, be combined with Judah again. And so I've got to keep them away from that. And so it was a matter of security. It's a matter of hanging on to his power. And so he set up his own priest, and he set up his own places of worship, and he set up these, these new feasts for the people of Israel. He set up a whole parallel religion to what God had established for his people. Meanwhile, in the south, the text keeps going back and forth, back and forth. And so in the south, um, with the exception of a handful of kings, in a few short years of getting back on track, it was just a train wreck from the get-go. In fact, 
post-Solomon, it was doomed from the beginning. Chapter 14, uh, if you want to look at 1 Kings 14 just for a second. I don't have this one on a slide. This gives a typical summary about these kings. In chapter 14, 1 Kings, verse 19, it says, The other events of Jeroboam's reign, his wars and how he ruled, are written in the book of the annals of the king of Israel. He reigned for 22 years and then rested with his fathers. And Nadab, his son, succeeded him as king. That's a pretty typical summary as you read through 1 Kings. That there's a lot that this guy did, and you can read about that somewhere else. What this is concerned about is were they completely devoted to God? How did they worship? Did they lead people toward God or away from him? That is all that really matters. And so time after time after time, you see the people being led away from God by selfish kings. The last part of chapter 14, it switches to the southern kingdom. In verse 22 of chapter 14, Judah did evil in the eyes of the Lord. But the, by the sins they committed, they stirred up his jealous anger more than their fathers had done. And then you get the story of Egypt coming in and all of the gold that Solomon had, had established in Jerusalem and used in the temple and used in the palace. All of that gold is carted off to Egypt. There's this really uh, interesting little detail where Rehoboam, the king, Solomon's son, one thing that Solomon had, had, had made were all of these golden shields worth untold treasure. Pharaoh in Egypt carts off all of the gold, so Rehoboam replaces them with bronze. And that is just an illustration of how far Israel had fallen. It's like all of the splendor and all the majesty was gone and just left with a shell of what it used to be. His boy, Abijam, carried on the trend. Asa slowed the slide for a moment, but just a moment. And then it goes back to the northern kingdom, and you have Nadab, Jeroboam's son. He reigned in the same evil way as his daddy, and, and Baasha kills him, but he continues the evil idolatry. Dale Davis is a guy that wrote a commentary that I've, I've used for today, and he said, have you ever wondered why parts of the Bible are boring? They, like this text, are boring because they are the records of sinful men who simply repeat the sins and evil of those before them. It's on repeat. Sin is never creative, but merely imitative and repetitious. Evil carries a built-in yawn. If the Bible is boring, blame Basha. Godlessness is dull. And you see it. And you still see it. We get so bored with sin because it just doesn't satisfy. And so it's just 
on repeat over and over and over that God alone is the one who brings joy, that God alone is the one who brings satisfaction, that God alone is the one that brings life. And all of these pseudo substitutes for life, they never satisfy. And so sin, even though it has the illusion of being really exciting, yeah, it's boring. After him, Eli gets assassinated while binge drinking. Zimri, the assassin, commits suicide when he realizes it's hard to have a coup when the military is not with you. Omri becomes king and builds the capital in Samaria, but he's also evil. And then you get to the most evil king of all. His name is Ahab. And that's the backdrop for this summer. Ahab reigned from 874 to 852 BC, which is a while for an Israelite king. And politically and economically, he brought stability. Largely because he married this really evil woman named Jezebel. She was a Phoenician princess. So Ahab and Jezebel ruled for 22 years. And Ahab was uniquely evil. In chapter 16, verse 34, this is an example of Ahab's reign. This is, this is just his MO. In Ahab's time, Hiel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations <clears throat> at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segeb, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. Ahab goes to this man, Ahio, and he says, I want you to build Jericho. So if you remember your history, when the Israelites first came into the promised land, Jericho was there, and the people of Israel walked around, marched around, they blew trumpets, they shouted, the walls came down. If you saw the VeggieTales version, it included grape slushies, I think, but that's not biblical. Um, but... Um, God had put a curse on Jericho and said, uh, it may never be rebuilt. And anyone who tries to rebuild it will, will lose. Ahab, the king, orders Jericho to be rebuilt. And the cost of that rebuilding was the sons of the builder. The sons died because of it. God's judgment is always in line with his promises. And when his promises are broken, it doesn't go well. Ahab and Jezebel um, were just evil. And Jezebel brought this brand of evil that was even deeper and darker than anything else that they had known in Israel. Specifically around the worship of Baal. And under Jezebel's influence, Israel was no longer a, even a pluralistic society. It, it went from Israel being, being 
singularly devoted to God under David and partially Solomon's reign to a pluralistic society where, yeah, you go worship God, but you can also worship all of these other idols as well. You can go to Jerusalem to the temple and make your sacrifices, but hey, we'll set up some high places on the top of the mountains where that's more convenient for you and you can worship kind of whatever you wanna worship and you can kind of bring in whatever neighbors you want into your worship and let's just mix and mingle, it'll be fun. So we went from singularly devoted to this pluralistic society Back to a singularly devoted society, but no longer on God, Yahweh, Jehovah. Now it was Baal. Jezebel didn't allow any other worship except that. And Ahab, her passive husband, followed suit. So that's the background when Elijah arrives on the scene. Man, there's one verse I wanted to show you. Verse 30 of chapter 16, Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. It's bad. So the question is, where is God? Where is God in all of this? And I, I want to, as we look at Elijah, I want to point out three things just about God and his character. And the first one is this, God's tenacious pursuit. When things are really, really awful, the question always, where is God in the middle of this? And Elijah appears in answer to that. Seemingly out of nowhere. We don't have any intro you know, it, it doesn't say, meanwhile, back at the farm, Jedediah and his wife Mildred gave birth to Elijah, a rather odd boy who smelled bad and was being groomed to be an amazing hero of the faith. It doesn't give any background. It came to pass in those days of evil to Ahab that God raised up Elijah and said, I want you to go in all your bad smelling ways to visit Ahab and give him some news. You know, it doesn't give anything. It just says Ahab was worse than anybody before him. And then Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe said, to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. You see, God's pursuit is tenacious and his timing is always perfect. And when it seems like God is nowhere to be found, when it seems like God has abandoned us, he hasn't. He knows exactly what is needed, and what is needed is his word, and his word always brings justice, and his word always brings people to a call to repentance and to return to what is true and covenantal. God says, I'm going to bring judgment for your wickedness. There will be no rain for the next few years except at my word. Deuteronomy 11 says this. It says, be careful or you will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. And then the Lord's anger will burn against you and he will shut up the heavens so that it will not rain and the ground will produce, yield no produce. And you will soon perish from the good land the Lord is giving you. Came true right here. No rain. God just has this amazing sovereignty 
but also an amazing sense of humor. Baal, you know what he was known for? The storm god. <laughs> Take that, Baal. He was the god of fertility, and his worship revolved, Baal worship revolved around sex, and the goal was not just debauchery and offspring, but lots of rain for good crops. So God's pronouncement through Elijah, there will be no rain, was like this direct challenge. Baal's reputation is on the line. Elijah's sudden appearance reminds the people of God that even though evil is prevalent and disheartening, we need not despair. Isaiah said this, and Peter reiterated it. He says, don't fear what they fear. Don't fear what they fear. Because God is always on the throne. God's countercultural work is already in motion. Ronald Wallace wrote, Whenever evil seems to flourish, it is always a superficial flourishing. For at the height of the triumph of evil, God will be there, ready with his man and his movement and his plans to ensure that his own cause will never fail. Revelation 2.13, Jesus is writing the, the churches in one of the letters. He says, I know where you live. I, I see you. I, I know what you're going through. I know what it's like. I know everything that is pressing in um, on top of you. I know the temptations. I, I know the, the oppression. I, I see you. God is not slow in keeping his promises. When it seems like there's an absence of God's word, his, his word just comes flowing through this passage. It dictates Elijah's schedule and itinerary. Elijah conforms to his word. In verse 5, he, he has, there's circumstances of the word. In verse 7, there, the word orders Elijah to move. In verse 8, he reassures Elijah. In verse 14, his word, his word, his word. Verse 2, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Leave here, turn eastward and hide in Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan. Hide yourself. Not just because Jezebel was slaughtering prophets, but that Elijah in hiding himself is actually uh, an illustration of the silence of God. Elijah is an office bearer, and when he vacates the area, he is no longer bringing the word of God. You see what I'm saying? That when Elijah leaves, that is a metaphor for God withdrawing from the people of the Lord, from the life of Israel. So there's a drought. Of rain, but there's also a drought of God's presence. Psalm 74, we are given no signs from God, no prophets are left, and none of us knows how long this will be. 
Amos 8, the days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. And people will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they won't find it. You see, there is something way worse than no rain. When, when God's presence is removed, that's hell. And the good news and, and the grace of the gospel all the way through is that God's presence is always readily available for those that would want it. The life-giving word of God is always available to those who want it. So God sends Elijah away In verse 4, he says, you will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. And so he did what the Lord had told him. He went to Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. And then the, Lord, the word of the Lord came to him, go at once to, to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I've directed a widow there to supply you with food. So we saw God's tenacious pursuit, that he, his timing is always perfect, that he's not silent, that he's not distant, that he, he, he isn't removed from our situation. And here we see God's creative provision I love this, man. Famine goes on for years, but Elijah is sustained by the Lord. And the ravens bring bread and meat in the morning and the evening. The the word meat actually means flesh. I almost hit a raven on the way to church this morning. You know where the raven was? In the middle of the road. You know what it was eating? I couldn't make out exactly what it was eating. So, basically, God is sustaining Elijah with roadkill, you know? And it gets even better than that. The brook dries up, and Elijah is sent 80 miles into the heart of Gentile country. This is Jezebel's hometown of all places. And he's sent to a widow of all people who will take care of him. God is super creative. The Israelites would have cringed at the thought that God sent a raven to give roadkill to Elijah because cleanliness was a big deal. So, so God sends the unclean, and then he sends the unlikely, the widow. The words widow and sustain in the same sentence are oxymoronic. They, a widow was at the 
at the dead end of society, the widow would have this intense poverty and loneliness and suffering. And yet, that's the one that was going to sustain this prophet of God. Unclean birds and unlikely widow lady. And not just any widow lady, but a widow lady 80 miles away in the heart of Jezebel country. One commentator said, don't you think there were probably some, some widow ladies there in Israel that could have taken care of Elijah? God, this is, this is, this is vintage God. He does the most creative acts in the most creative ways, largely to remind us that he is capable to remind us that, that he alone is the one who sustains us. We are so prone towards self-sufficiency. But what happens when our self-sufficiency is completely stripped from us? That's what Elijah is experiencing. This is the way of God. I want to remind us of this, that this all points to the cross. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. The Jews demand miraculous signs. The Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to, to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. This is the way of God, which leads to this last point. And this is such an example of God's unshakable promise. When Solomon, before his downfall, he, he built this temple, and it was magnificent. And the day that he dedicated the temple was like the best day ever in all of Israel's history. And in his speech, he said, there is no God like you, God. And in 1 Kings 8, he says, this is what you promised concerning the throne and the lineage of King David. Based upon your past faithfulness, you will keep your future promises. Based upon your past faithfulness, you will keep your future promises. And what you have in that statement, in that prayer, in that dedication, is a fusion of God's fidelity and expectancy. God's fidelity is his faithfulness 
from generation to generation. And based upon that, we can have a confident expectancy of what God will do. And in this whole culture back in, in uh, you know, Middle East, five to 900 years before Jesus, uh, that was unheard of. In the pagan culture, gods were fickle because they weren't real, but also that you had a hard time appeasing them. They were never satisfied. And so you always had a backup plan. If you, were, if you were a pagan and worshipped idols back in this culture, you always had a backup plan. And Solomon in his dedication says, we don't need a backup plan. Based upon God's faithfulness, we can absolutely be confident of how he will reign. The true God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He keeps his promises. He keeps his covenant. Solomon's prayer is in light of God's truth. This is how it will go well with us. If we remain true to God, if we remain connected and intimate with God, if we worship the only God, if we, if we reject all the idols and all the stuff that's pushing in on us and, and have a singular focus on God, our eyes fixated on God, it is going to go well. It doesn't mean that we won't have hardship, but it means that we have eternal promises. It means that this is going somewhere and God has promised that where it's going is good. And if we take our eyes off of him, it'll fall apart. And we see it in 1 Kings. In chapter 15, God says, I will destabilize, I will uproot, I will scatter, I will give up on account of the sins of Jeroboam. And in chapter 15, 25, he talks about, I will bring the destruction of this dynasty. In chapter 17, this is going toward exile. And Solomon, back in his prayer of dedication, he even gives this worst case scenario. Because he knows how we're bent. And he says, suppose, suppose, God, that your people walk away. Suppose they give their, their hearts and their affections to other gods. When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and give them over to their enemies who take them captive to their own lands far away or near. And if they have a change of heart in the land where they are held captive and repent and, and, and plead with you in the land of their captors and say, we have sinned, we have done wrong, we have acted wickedly. And if they, God, if they turn back to you with all their heart and soul in the land of their enemies who took them captive and pray to you toward the land you gave their ancestors, toward the city you've chosen and the temple I've built in your name, 
Then from heaven, God, from your dwelling place, hear their prayer and their plea and uphold their cause. Forgive your people who have sinned against you. Forgive their offenses they have committed against you and cause their captors to show them mercy. For they are your people and your inheritance whom you brought out of Egypt, out of the iron smelting furnace. May your eyes be open to your servant's plea and to the plea of your people Israel. And may you listen to them whenever they cry out to you. Solomon says, okay, let's, let's do a worst case scenario. But, God, based upon your past faithfulness, I want to pray with expectation that even then when your people turn back to you, you'll hear them, you'll receive them, and you'll forgive them, and you will bring them back into your loving embrace. Friends, we have this unshakable promise of God. And the cross sealed it. All the way through the Old Testament, all the way through the prophets, really from Genesis on, everything is pointing toward Jesus. With the the crunch of temptation... Is set into motion the, the fall of mankind and all of the chaos that came with it. But God in his grace from the get-go was providing a way of redemption. So no matter where we land in Scripture, it all points to that. We have these promises that even when we think God is distant, he hears us. Even when we think God is is silent, he speaks. And even when we think God is passive, he acts. 2 Peter 3, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So, I want that to lead us into a time of communion this morning. As we think about God's promises to us, as we think about our, our own propensity to go after our own idols and our, our own self-sufficiency and our own self-fulfilled promises, instead of really grabbing hold of God's promises to us. His promises are yes in Jesus. I was reading, uh, Temper Longman just read this kind of an overall survey of the Old Testament. And in that, he, um, he talks about the difference between First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. And if, if you read those over the summer, I encourage you to do that. Um, you'll notice that there is a, a lot of similarities. In fact, it's, it's during the same, it's written about the same time period. And there's a ton of overlap. And so the point is this, that Kings was written while the people of Israel were in exile. And uh, Chronicles is written post-exile. And so the two books ask very different questions. And Kings asked the question, how did we get here? 
here we are in exile. Here we are, uh, you know, away from our home and, and enslaved. How did we get here? So Kings comes across as this really kind of a, a negative tone that this is how we got here is that we took our eyes off of God and onto idols. And Chronicles has a positive spin. And Chronicles is like post-exile. And so Chronicles is asking the question, okay, what can we learn from our past? But what do we do now? And I, I just want to hold those intention as we as we spend time in, in the Old Testament this summer. It's like, how did we get here? But what can we learn and what do we do now? What do we do now? We did a series on Jonah back in November and this verse that popped out of Jonah, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. And that just has reverberated from generation to generation throughout history. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. And so the invitation is to, to let go of our worthless idols in order to cling to the one true God. Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments. God delivers those to Moses on top of Mount Sinai and and so it starts with, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of slavery in Egypt. Have no other idols before me. Have no other gods before me. And that is the invitation. God always starts with deliverance. And then he brings, this is how it will go well. God starts with redemption, and then he gives the details, right? I am the God who delivered you. In light of that, have a singular devotion 